never have the experience of our our parents, our grandparents that we don't even often really know or understand that we hold some of that as well. Mm. You know, and there's there's so much wonderful and expansive research now around um, you know, in, in neuroscience, neuroplasticity, um, more and more understanding around trauma and, you know, its, its mechanism, how it works, how it exists and resides within the body. Um, you know, and I think for me, I, I sort of look at uh, you know the Western medical model is is really limiting and I think diminishing and quite dangerous actually in terms of um, mental and, and spiritual well-being and certainly for you know I, I, I think about I've experienced, you know, through other um, Indigenous people throughout that are still living, practising culture in the fullest way that they can. Um, And I see, you know, we did have all these very embodied practices, dance, song, Um, you know sounding we had ceremonial practices that would induce expanded states of consciousness Um, and I feel like you know when I when I read some of the material around Mm. trauma and neuroscience and and what everyone's saying, you know, the, the, the things, the processes that help us to, to really be able to process and release those things from our, our bodies and, um, you know, effectively reprogram ourselves. It involves embodied practice. Healing, a word that is a noun the process of making or becoming healthy again, and an adjective, as in tending to heal or therapeutic. Healing can be physical, spiritual, psychological, and regenerative. It can occur as a result of a cure, or one can be healed without being cured. Healing is also referred to as part of grief. Reserved for Healing is the title of the current exhibition at Contemporary Art Tasmania now closed due to coronavirus precautionary measures. Featuring works by May Gannambar, Jack Langford, Kanina Langford, Ruth Langford, Josie Mason, Warren Mason and Michelle Maynard. The exhibition was developed through CAT and Wallantana Linani Pelingana with support from the Australia Council's chosen initiative. And the program featured a symposium which was followed by a discussion between members of the local Aboriginal community that focused on identifying cultural protocols and processes to ensure that the telling of story is a healing journey for Indigenous people. This is What Are You Looking At? And I'm your host, Pip Stafford.
Grandfather Clifford and Granny, like, had family in 89. Mum and Dad and us, and what a big, strong family we were, you know, like, and uh, how we all supported each other and the way that we, you know, like, the way that Grandfather Clifford looked, you know, looked after his family, I suppose, you know. You reckon very astute, like, very with it, you know, always had money, always dressed nice, always looked out for his people too. He was the, you know, the mainstay of the whole shoot match. He was the, the patriarch. After he went, start to unravel. His grandfather just killed a sheep. He killed two sheep and he made sure that everyone on the island got feed. If he killed a beast, everybody ate on the island. He made sure of that. Because he had been on substance. He was the only man on the island. He was the first man on the island that charcoal. Like to do all the charcoal to feed the animals. And Rodney and I went to the bones one day. And it been blood for 15, 20 years since I'd been back to Flinders. So we went into bones. And then Rodney came with the man. Rodney Cowan. Hey, hey, look here. Oh, uh, what young things these were in you when I was a boy. I said, my boy, they were there when I was a girl. And we started laughing. And Rodney started laughing. And old Stan Bowman was behind the, the counter and he said, my God, he said, I haven't heard a laugh like that since the late great Clifford Everett. My name's Michelle Maynard. I'm a Tasmanian Aboriginal woman. Uh, my practice is art, design, culture and healing. My um, Aboriginal heritage comes from my father's side. Uh, my family on my father's side lived through the Cape Barren Island Reserve experience. So we have a very, as all the families that came through that experience do, we have a very strong connection with Cape Barren Island and, and the, the islands in general. Uh, but our blood lineages actually come through uh, the northeast of Tasmania and Victoria through the Bunurong people and the women, Bunurong women and Tasmanian women that um, came into relationship with whalers and sealers and over time um, a community was formed and established really on Cape Barren Island and grew from there. Over the last couple of years I've done had the opportunity to do some great projects. Um, st it started with uh, Terrapin Puppet Theatre. Um, I worked with my cousin Nathan Maynard on his play, uh, Not So Traditional Story, um, creating a, a a big textile backdrop. I've also had the opportunity to work with Liminal Studios on um, collaborating with them as an Indigenous designer. Uh, they, were, they were looking to collaborate with an Indigenous designer on the carpet. That's uh, for the Hedberg project. Um, so that's been pretty exciting and a huge learning curve uh, to work with them creating an artwork uh, that was then um, transferred into the carpet design 
and it's just recently been laid in the Hedberg building and that was a digital artwork um, working around the theme of a story that Liminal Studio uh, was actually a really key part of the inspiration for the entire building. They, uh, the couple of the architects had been on a walk up in the northeast of Tasmania and told the story of the transportation of fire and the old people used to put banksia wicks in the abalone shell and the embers and um, in two abalone shells and wrap it in bull kelp. So that became a really big source of inspiration for them. And it's, um, you can, you can see uh, how they've transferred that in the design with the, the idea of the cloaking, the bull kelp. Um, so the exterior of the building, they've, they've cloaked it in this kind of opalescent, um, shiny kind of sparkly surfaces which are representative of the abalone shell so that provided an obvious uh, starting point for me to create the design feeling that well then the floors in the building you know they're the they're the ground they're the where everyone's coming together they're um, kind of the holding place for the for the whole building and that felt to me, well, well, that's the fire, that's the, the embers, the spark. Um, Marcus Hughes, Mananjali um, through my mother's line, and um, I, I work at the moment as head of Indigenous Engagement and Strategy at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. Ruth Langford came to have a look at an exhibition that I'd put into the, the Powerhouse Museum, and it was the first time we'd met, and... and for some reason, there was a really profound connection. Um, Ruth came into the first um, the first room of the, the exhibition and um, was really overwhelmed by the sense of comfort um, that that provided. And then, again, the exhibition is about connection and and lineage, and there was was something really important. So we had lots of yarns after that, and and there were lots of tears, and um, we promised that we would stay in in contact. Um, and then I got an invitation from from Ruth to come to to Tasmania to Hobart. Um, to have a look around, to have a yarn, um, to have chats, to meet people, and um, it's been a really wonderful couple of days. And it's, it's, it's one of those great situations where, you know, often you'll be invited to a place to come and speak and do all that business. But often you don't have the opportunity to get back or to be chained yourself and um, yesterday at, at CAT we had that public yarn um, just about stuff and, and there were a couple of moments in that where I was able to think about 
my own heritage in a, a different way. And that was such a, an absolute gift. It's stayed with me and, and will be something that I'll keep thinking about and keep working on. Early on we came together and started to just present the, the very early ideas that were forming and it was, it was very clear to us that there was a, a thread between all of our ideas which was because uh, the, th the three of us ment mentors, um, all of our families have been affected by the mission and reserve systems. We're, we're each from different states. Um, Warren is from New South Wales, Ruth Langford's lineage is from Victoria. Um, but yeah, we've all been heavily impacted and there was this theme coming through, you know, around uh, the, the marks that are made from, from these um, systems and these experiences that our um, families lived through and how, you know, it's, it's not just the generation of family that lived that experience, but it continues on through the, the generations and that intergenerational woundedness that, um, that occurs. So we, um, we've fairly quickly decided it was about healing and the exhibitions called Reserved for Healing um, and what's emerging are really three quite different um, exhibits and approaches um, but really all with that common thread around um, different different ways of healing um, or or different ways of acknowledging some of these marks and wounds that have occurred through these um, experiences that our families have had. How do you feel that that sense of um your practice, art practice, and and cultural practice, and healing. How does how is that playing out in the work that, or in the exhibition that you're doing here at CAT? Yeah, so um, currently working on a project with uh, two other Indigenous artists, uh, Ruth Langford and Warren Mason. It's a project funded through um, Australia Arts Council. Uh, through the Chosen program and it's about um, intergenerational transference of knowledge and so we've got the opportunity to mentor three young emerging artists so for us um, when we were thinking about who we may work with we um, we decided we wanted to work with members of our family um, because that's that's our cultural way. That's how intergenerational passing of knowledge occurs. Which, in some ways, is you know, it's not the standard way that people in the world um, you know work. Because it, it you know can be labelled nepotism, but it's like, well, this is this is actually our cultural way of being. Um, so 
early on we came together and we we talked about um, our ideas because the us as the mentors um, the opportunity was to have a have a art project idea in mind and work with the mentees uh, guiding them through the design process so that they got to experience that process and you know the concept development um, going into the actual design phase and into a curatorial phase where we um, <coughs> curated the work and then had it really developed into a form where we're able to have a mock pitch experience um, to to have an experience yeah of what that process is if we were looking at being able to um, pitch our ideas out in the world to try and attract funding. It is strange and perhaps topical to be exploring ideas of healing as we all face the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic. When we were researching ideas for this episode, I was also struck by the deep trauma that it must evoke for First Nations people, seeing the net result of colonisation and the ecological destruction of this country. However, in this thinking, I had also failed to consider the ongoing trauma that plays out on an individual and community level through family, historical and current violence and cultural erasure that is still ongoing and very much a reality. It's a really huge thing to talk into. Um, you know, there's so many different layers and aspects, I think. I was thinking about it this morning, you know, um, you know, your, your question referring to, um, you know, culture and healing in the current political context and... You know, I, I, on the weekend, I, as part of the uh, mentor program that we're doing, I, part of my research has been to, to um, go and talk with family and collecting audio of stories and that took me to Flinders Island and while I was there, I, I uh, it was my first visit to Waibalena and it was really overwhelming to go there and stand on that country and almost see uh, this experience that the people had um, on that what's referred to as a settlement and I stood in the graveyard and there's recently been erected um, a new um, sign and that acknowledges uh, the over 150 people that are buried in that graveyard and through the research as many names that could be identified have been and listed and acknowledged on that signage and I was standing there just reading it and yeah I was really overwhelmed by how many children 
lived there, lived and died there, and young people. And, you know, as soon as we drove into the property, I could see, um, you know, you walk up one end of it and it's facing south towards Tasmania, looking out to the water. And I just, I felt such a sense of despair and really felt feeling how miserable and hopeless and devastating it must have felt to be there for the, the people, you know, the remnants of clans to be rounded up and, and then, you know, placed on this island away from all their homelands and after, you know, all of their people had been killed and there they are, a mixture of, of clans and tribes suddenly together on this, um, you know, small, small area of land really, this settlement that was very um, colonially driven. It was really that continuation of um, settling them there to, you know, continue to um, continue to try and assimilate them to be like white Australia and so it was a really unique experience this time to be on Flinders Island and, you know, feeling, just feeling a, a really heavy undercurrent of um, as beautiful as that island is, you know, I, I really was thinking um, how challenging uh, these realities must be for community and knowing that you know some years ago um, the the positionings of the people that are buried in that graveyard um, were identified and uh, they were marked small crosses were put in the ground to to um, indicate where people were within there and a plaque was placed and and then over some time uh, there were people on the island that um, snuck in one night and removed all of those markers and so once again you go to the graveyard and there's about up in one corner there's a about a dozen headstones of non-Aboriginal people, but the majority of the graveyard is just dry grass and unacknowledged where people are laying at rest there. So I was thinking this morning, you know, like these are how, you know, even in the, in the opportunity at the moment, um, you know, with the devastation of the fires and 
and this real calling about Indigenous land management practices and, you know, people starting to go, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe that's something we should turn to and look to and, um, you know, the incredible opportunity that, that exists there for country and for our people. I also recognised that, um, you know, for from from my own experience in my own community, like there's there's so many indigenous people that are so tired and worn down, you know, and that have lived um, a very huge part of their lives. Um, dealing with some pretty profound trauma and woundedness and suffering and that carrying of that sense of hopelessness you know for and it, and and I feel like there's many people that have almost given up or don't have the energy to, um, I guess, to participate in now where, um, you know, government may be wanting to embrace a part of who we are in our culture. You know, we've lived for so long, particularly pe people like us here in Tasmania, you know, really, the perception towards our people here was that we, we were so unworthy, we were worthy of annihilation. And that's, that's a profound wounding to, to, to try and heal. So, you know, it's certainly been my own experience, but I see it throughout the generations of my family, um, how that how that plays out, how that limits our capacity to be in the world um, in our fullness and vibrancy, you know, the, the individual woundedness, but also to community, also to country, to our culture, you know, it's a whole package. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's a big one, you know, I think also what I've been observing over the last few years um, and acknowledging around uh, Australia Day Invasion Day, you know, it's such a charged day in, in this country and a lot of, I start, really started taking notice of a lot of um, the non-Indigenous people in my world and um, just observing uh, on that day alone how disconnecting it can be and even um, attending events where uh, there may have been Indigenous people doing an acknowledgement or a welcome. 
I started to really see how um, in, in the way that that, that may be approached um, and we may offer that. Uh, I've certainly observed situations where it's been deeply disconnecting um, and I've also seen um, times where those things have been carried out in a way that have been deeply connecting and 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 much more invitational about you know how do we how do we all come back together and how do we um, how do we just acknowledge that um, you know the level of grief that exists not just for our people but I, I personally think for all people because you know Australia is founded on a culture of displacement. It's been an incredible learning experience to to realise that so much of our cultural material is housed in these keeping places and those keeping places us are constructed in a way that it's really easy for us not to feel welcome not to feel that we have permission to be there and and that means we don't feel we have the permission to access the culture that is ours so we've you know had 250 years of of interrupted culture and culture that's been removed and you know I was at a, 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 a an event back in Sydney only this week and Uncle Alan who gave welcome to country you know made a real point of saying you know I cannot give you welcome in my language because that was forbidden for me and I don't know my language and that brings great great shame and sadness when when you look at the world around you and you don't see yourself your your culture is not reflected back to you so fundamentally you become invisible so that whole process of reclaiming um, culture is really difficult um, that authenticity um, is something that we you know crave deeply um, and to to really go to that place it's incredibly important that we do have access to those keeping places and that knowledge and that documentation of what our cultural practices were but so often the translation of that is through the eyes of a non-indigenous anthropologist who often misses the point um, but what I see when groups people investigate ceremony and recreate and reinvent 
um, what cultural practice is for them, then there's a sense of pride that starts to develop and a sense of healing. And, you know, we come to ceremony and we feel that connection because of the things that we do and that we understand. So, yeah, cultural practice, it's, it's about our DNA. Um, it's about being able to see ourselves in, in our communities and then to start feeling safe. I was really lucky to spend uh, time in northeast Arnhem Land and I remember the first time I sat in a funeral bungal ceremony and which went for a week and I was I was astounded at um, the length and the depth and really uh, the intricacy and the the responsibility that was carried out uh, when somebody passes away and yeah, here I was sitting every day for a week and watching um, all the different clans coming together dancing sun up to sundown um, and and really expressing their grief through dance, through song, um, you know, through the the physical throwing themselves on the ground or um, you know hitting themselves in the head, and it was uh, it was something that I'd never experienced, and but I remember sitting there and going well, this makes complete sense to me. Like, why, why wouldn't we do this? Such an overwhelming um, concept. Um, and with, you know, the work that I do, it's, it's about primarily providing opportunities for, for our audiences whatever, whoever they may be, um, to understand the power that they have um, and the role that they play in, in building cohesive communities. Um, a lot of the, the work then becomes about in order to move forward, we, we so often have to deal with the past. And for many of the communities that, that I work with, the pasts are fraught um, with the ugliness of humanity. So it, it, it becomes that of being able to listen deeply to the community that surrounds me, that I, that I live with. And I, you know, I have that 
profound belief that my ancestors always sit with me and, and guide me and and will provide the way forward. Um, so when it, it, it comes to to being with those communities that are in pain, um, being able to find a place where they can come and be safe enough to visit the trauma and explore it a little bit more and move a little bit further forward and um, become stronger in that, that sense of place um, where, where the pain is less. So for me, working um, within the museum and, and, and gallery sector, um, I see lots of communities who feel completely disengaged or disenfranchised from their, their culture. Um, so it's really important that I do everything I can to make sure that there is access to that, that cultural material um, and there is access to the people who have the knowledges to support that, that trans transformation, I guess. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Are You Looking At? This episode features interviews with Michelle Maynard and Marcus Hughes, an audio by Michelle Maynard from the Reserve for Healing exhibition. This audio was recorded by Michelle and edited by Christopher Gannambar, featuring interviews with Douglas Maynard, Erica Short, Rodney Newell and Dean Newell. What Are You Looking At can be found on the CAT website, on SoundCloud and on your favourite podcast apps.